The name of our podcast, Techsequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Daigle. On the evening of May 25th, 2020, 17-year-old Daniela Frazier was taking her nine-year-old cousin to Cup Foods when she saw several police officers pushing a terrified man down to the asphalt behind a police cruiser. There were new news media as several people gathered, pleading with the officers for restraint. Terrified herself, she began filming a 10-minute video clip, which quickly became viral on social media channels, garnering millions of views and sparking protests across the nation against police brutality. That same video became the central piece of evidence used in convicting Officer Derek Chauvin to 22 and a half years for the murder of a Black man, George Floyd. The George Floyd video is just one of the countless videos, images, texts, blogs, and even audio clips known as user-generated content, or UGC, posted by users online. This trend started long ago, prompting Time Magazine to name you as a person of the year in 2006, referring to the rise of production of UGC on Web 2.0 platforms. According to a new study from Consumer Technology Association, user-generated content accounts for 39% of weekly media hours consumed by Americans versus 61% for traditional media. As you would expect, young users are more likely to consume user-generated content. For example, per the same study, teens 13 to 17 spend 56% of their media time with user-created content compared to just 22% among consumers 55 and older. It is worth noting that the study is based on self-reported data, and since people do not always have an objective view of their behavior, the data should be viewed as directionally, if not absolutely accurate. What is certain is that user-generated content has changed the media landscape and business models, but that just may be the tip of the iceberg. What are the consequences of user-generated content and how we view ourselves and the world we live in? Our guest today is Claire Wardle. Claire is co-founder and co-director of the Information Futures Lab and professor at practice at the Brown School of Public Health. She is considered a leader in the field of misinformation, verification, and user-generated content, co-authoring the foundational report, Information Disorder, an Interdisciplinary Framework for Research and Policy for the Council of Europe. In 2015, Claire co-founded the nonprofit First Draft, a pioneer in innovation, research, and practice in the field of misinformation. Over the past decade, she has developed an organization-wide training program for the BBC on eyewitness media, verification, and misinformation, led social media policy at UNHCR, been a fellow at the Shorenstein Center for Media Politics and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, and been the research director at the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. She holds a PhD in communication from the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Claire. Thanks for having me. So user-generated content is created by a mixed bag of authors, citizen journalists, activists, and even rogue nation states and criminal or terrorist organizations. So when we are talking user-generated content and issues related to it, such as validity, trust, and even governance, should we be making a distinction between these types? It's a great question. I mean, I think when we first understood the power of 
user-generated content and just speaking personally, um, I became interested in it actually in around the tsunami in December of 2004. So we're about to hit, I don't know, almost 20 years ago. And we wouldn't have understood the size of that wave if we hadn't had people, mostly they had video cameras. It wasn't, this was kind of before phone cameras. So I became really interested in the fact that I think we we recognized the power of that. We didn't just see the aftermath, we saw the fear. And then the following July, I'm British and uh, live in London. And then there was the 7-7 bombings, the 7th of July. And it was the first time that the BBC ever ran with footage in their news outlet that night because it was captured by phones with people who were stuck in the tube in the underground system. And that was huge. And that that sparked my interest in all of that. So you're absolutely right. The first time we really understood the power of user generated content was very much around kind of news events. And then in the following five years, we had the explosion of Facebook, YouTube and other things. And so then brands got interested in user generated content, which is maybe we can get our consumers to create create our adverts. And then, you know, we everybody was really excited about user generated content. As you said, time, you know, gave out the person of the year to all of us. And then we kind of had, you know, 2012 onwards, things started to get darker. There was Hurricane Sandy and we had a number of rumors circulating on Twitter. We had a number of false images and videos and people started to say, well, hang on, this is becoming more of a worry. And then in 2016, we had the Philippines elections, Brexit and the US election. And people suddenly recognized, well, hang on, foreign actors can potentially play a role in elections. And we now understand disinformation and the way that that. But as you say, it's all user generated content. But it's fascinating to think in the last 18 years, this timeline, we've had to move from this kind of utopian, oh, isn't it amazing? Everybody can be a producer to hang on, everybody can be a producer. And what does that mean? So I think there's an interesting juxtaposition in the timeline of that as well, because it was sort of at the same time as as traditional news outlets were suddenly being crushed for for budget because nobody's reading papers anymore and you know everybody wanted to get everything online. And there's this, you know, upsurge of of user generated content. So it must have, you know, citizen journalism must have seemed like a, a boon to the the budgets of any any number of newsrooms. So so would you say then that user generated content has actually changed the news industry in some way? It's a complicated question because there's a number of factors. I mean, you're right that there were many journalists that were very concerned about the fact that anybody could be a journalist. But from an economic perspective, newsrooms figured out quite quickly, well, hang on, I don't need to send a news crew because there's going to be somebody there with a phone that increasingly became very, very powerful phones that were producing very you know, amazing images. And, images. and to be honest, we never used to have an image of the explosion. You'd go afterwards as a journalist and you'd have you'd see the police cordon, and but you rarely saw the thing. User-generated content allowed the thing to be produced. But you're right about newsrooms having their budget slashed, mostly because of kind of advertising revenue diving because of the growth of Google and Facebook and other things. So but what that meant was from a kind of a gatekeeping perspective is that people lost the the chance to, to, to have the information filtered for them. So that was happening at the same time as you could turn to Google or Facebook or, you know, all of a sudden your community your local paper is closed, but your Facebook community group is telling you everything about why the traffic light is down, why there was a burglary last night. I mean, not always true, but people had a perception that they were getting information from user-generated content. So 
you know, the last 20 years have been fascinating because you're absolutely right. We can't disconnect the rise of misinformation with the fact that for many people, they no longer know a local journalist. They might not have a local newspaper. You know, news deserts in the US and many other countries are a serious, serious issue. And whilst we don't have good research about that relationship, I feel very strongly that the absence of strong journalism, particularly local journalism, has meant that people have had to turn to one another for news and not everybody understands how news is produced and doesn't understand necessarily how to verify information. So we have all of these rumours circulating in local community spaces, which can be deeply problematic. As you mentioned, so many times we've seen videos from the front lines, whether it be an explosion or whether it be front lines of a conflict of war or whether even um, thinking about the Arab Spring, for example, uh, in many cases, these news organizations are not there. As you said, they cannot be dispatched there in time. And there is such a great competition between news outlets to be the first one to air a story. So given that, as you said, a lot of times this can be manipulated or it may not be entirely true, it creates a um, interesting question for the news outlets to, uh, when they decide to publish it, oftentimes they say, well, we can't independently verify this information, which at least for some users makes it less trustworthy, even if later it turns out to be true. So in a competitive news environment, what is the right framework for handling such content, especially if it's really time sensitive, but still unvalidated? So I've done a lot of research with newsrooms about this issue. And what's interesting is particularly the larger newsrooms learn between 2012, 2015, that they needed to train up journalists in their newsrooms to do this. Because you mentioned the Arab Spring, you know, the Syrian conflict, there were almost no journalists on the ground at the beginning. And so we had YouTube footage that potentially showed chemical weapons attacks or you know, a missile, but nobody, there was literally nobody on the ground to verify it. So this new field emerged uh, around how do you verify content on the social web enough that newsrooms would say, yes, this we're going to run with this. But you have this challenge in newsrooms because you'd have these particularly younger journalists who say, look, I've done a forensic analysis of this YouTube um, video. I've done the shadow analysis. I've, you know, I've looked at the metadata. I can tell you with, you know, I'm very, very certain that this is true. And the lawyers would come in and say, there's, there's nobody on the ground from our newsroom that can say it actually happened. So I think it's best that we use the language. This is, you know, we cannot independently verify. But we did research with audience members who actually quoted that phrase and kept saying, I don't know why they run with this stuff if they can't verify it. So we actually didn't help ourselves by stating that. And what we should have done is to say, here's all of the checks that we've done. Or if you want to look at our verification work, you know, go and look here um, because you can see how the sausage is made. So I don't, we didn't help ourselves. But the truth is, there are pretty um, very strong checklists about all of the need, the types of things you need to look at. The provenance, are you looking at the original version or is it a scrape? How can you give a timestamp? Like I said, can you do a shadow analysis of where you expect the sun to be at that particular time? Can you geolocate it by cross-referencing with satellite imagery or Google Maps? So people who do this take a lot of time. And, and so very rarely would a newsroom run with false footage. Sometimes that has happened, and I'm not going to name names, but you know, there's a number of large news organizations who have run with footage. I remember one famous one saying it was from Syria and it was actually fireworks after the Kentucky Derby. I mean, it's just kind of, you know, somebody just got overexcited. But most of the time, the checks mean that that doesn't happen. 
Yeah, I think it, it really comes back to, you mentioned that the news news services filter stuff. And I, I mean, I like to think of it as curation, right? So in, in a lot of cases, it's really about the purpose of the news organization is to not just present the facts, it, that is the point, but but to curate the, all the data and all the material, whether it's user generated or whatever, and, you know, present uh, a coherent story. Um, I think one of the other sort of interesting areas to, to, to talk about is what happens with things like things that are like known to be fiction, but maybe they're historical fiction and maybe they're sort of tweaking our understanding in the background of what actually really happened. And I'm thinking of a couple of particular uh, current fiction stories, one of which is The Crown um, and, and that whole series where uh, there's a deep dive into the and, and it's put forward as fiction, right? A fictional account of the 70 year reign of Queen Elizabeth and all of the family and all of that. But there are incidents that happen in that um, in in that story that never happened, you know, and and can be the fact checkers are out afterwards saying, yeah, this never happened. But in people's minds, they're going to remember the actors and the scenes, and it's going to blur with their notion of what what really happened. So, you know, not to not to pick on that particular series or anything, but maybe I think that buried in there somewhere, there's a question about, you know, what is the importance of narrative here? And how does this get how does the subtle changes in 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 what's represented as fact in this in this content change our understanding of reality? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, on a personal level, I struggle with this series of The Crown because, of course, I remember exactly those things. And they're so clever. Like, they will use the exact same dress that Diana was wearing. So you're right. My brain remembers seeing that dress on that six o'clock news right. report from the BBC. And so it's very difficult for us to, you know, because we're always relying on heuristics, which is the term for mental shortcuts to help us make sense of the world. And so you're absolutely right. We're always drawing on that. And we're that that's what we go to. But you're right. I mean, there's there's often even like a news story if if they film it, you know, and they like stage the background. And you're like, well, I wouldn't normally be doing this, and like, well, it it makes for a good story. So even in the news, like, there's always a, like there's a the need for story, the need for narrative, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it's hard. It's hard. That's why we're in this moment now as a society, really struggling with what's true and false because you know, ultimately, we've got we're in information overload, we're trying to make sense of everything. And we're just grabbing on to what we can as we go. But we have fewer gatekeepers, we have more information than ever, we're exhausted, but we're like, you know, our the dopamine hits means that we're clamoring for more. And it's really hard. And I, you know, when people say, Oh, surely, there's a quick fix to this, you know, we just have to tweak the Facebook algorithm, or, you know, there isn't like, as a society, we're in this revolution, this shift, but in terms of our information spaces, and we're having to evolve and we're having to learn new skills of how to navigate this. And that's why disinformation agents are being so successful, because they're tapping into, well, if I make this person angry or scared or made, make them feel superior, they're less likely to use their critical faculties, which is what's happening with the crowd. Like if I see a dress that I remember from when I was 13, I'm less likely to be like, Oh, well, when Diana sat with child, Charles in the living room, do you think they actually said that? Like, I'm exactly. already there. I'm there. Yeah. So that's that's why, you know, our brains are uh, doing their best. But <laughs> it's tricky. And and in a context where, you know, the old adage, you have to see it to believe it, you are seeing it. So you believe it. And even if you don't believe it in the moment, five years from now, you're going to have that little fragment of it. Wait, now, was that in, in the series or did it? And that's why uh, I'm sure we'll get into this, but, you know, Instagram and TikTok, 
uh, even, you know, podcasts, you know, we are more likely to believe what we see or hear than what we read. Because when we read, we kind of go into, oh, okay, my brain, you know, but you see something emotional on Instagram, you're less likely to be like, mm, I was trained, I had a class once, and now I've got to do with the checks. Like, you're done. You're done because visuals mean that you're less likely because you're, you know, you have this sense of, oh, I've seen it, so I must believe it. Right. We talked about um, news media. However, a lot of this user-generated content, as you mentioned, is also put on social media. And as we talked about earlier in the uh, intro, the young people are getting their information, their news, mostly from social media, which is a, a big difference from, say, our grandfather's generation, which used to park themselves in front of the TV for the nightly news or pick up the newspaper. Um, which raises interesting questions around content moderation, because some of this uh, user-generated content is also generated by foreign adversaries. So what do we want Zuckerberg or Elon Musk to be the gatekeepers of what is true or not, uh, or what is allowed or not? How does this change the content moderation game when you're putting, when you're talking about user-generated content on social media? Well, this is this is the question of the moment. Um, and the thing is, there's I mean, I often have people say, I don't understand why this is such a problem. Like, surely it should. this is easy to solve. And the truth is, there's actually the amount of outright falsehoods is actually relatively low. What we see is a lot of gray speech, which is, you know, it's harder to say that that's an outright falsehood. People are like, I'm just asking a question about ivermectin. You know, or here's here's a video of my mum's side effect after she had the vaccine. Now, is that a real video or is that somebody staging it? Like, I can't go around and fact check that if I'm Facebook. So content moderation is so difficult because of all these questions. And I mean, let's go to COVID, for example. There are many things at the beginning of the pandemic we thought we knew. And if Facebook had taken down all of those posts that talked about masks or the fact that it was transmitted by, by a touch as opposed to, you know, uh, aerosol, you know, they would have had to change that. So lots of this stuff is like as science evolves and we grow. So the idea that you can moderate content just isn't possible. if Unless we go back to an era of, let's just say it, mostly white men sitting around a table telling us what news is. You know, there's this idea of like, oh, if only we have Walter Cronkite again, we wouldn't have these problems. Well, that wasn't perfect either. There are many communities we didn't hear from. There were many stories we didn't hear. So the internet has given us a lot of good things, but when there are good things, there's, there's other things. So I think we need to do, we need to be better at moderating sources. So like known bad actors or uh, behaviors, known behaviors, the use of tactics that we know are problematic. But the idea of moderating content is very, very difficult unless we say, well, who who's the moderator? And even if Facebook says, well, we're going to take whatever the WHO says. Well, January 2020, the WHO tweeted, you know, this is not an airborne virus. I mean, we can't, there is no body, literally a body on this planet that is the arbiter of truth. Um, which is the phrase that Facebook and others like to use. But so from where I am is we have to get smarter as a society to figure out what it is. How do we navigate these spaces rather than saying, well, we need Facebook to take down the good stuff, you know, the bad stuff and keep up the good stuff because that's so difficult. I mean, I would say we need to come at this from a lens of harm. So rather than is it truthful or false, it, is this content going to cause harm? I would like to see the platforms have more policies around that. And again, that's not easy because how do you define harm? But 
I think it, we would feel happier as a society around that rather than, oh, Mark Zuckerberg believes that this is true or false, because that we can't go that way either. Let me just bring up the question of the Christchurch uh, shooting, which was live streamed. And a lot of the criticism was against Facebook for allowing that live streaming. And uh, obviously, once the content is distributed, it's very hard to get that back. So what do you what should we do in those instances, in those instances where the, um, the immediacy question um, is the content is immediately posted and you really don't have an opportunity to, to react? If you are the, the the social media platform, yeah. So the Facebook Live stuff, I I feel frustrated by. I remember at the time knowing somebody who worked at Facebook, and we were good friends. And it was before it was launched, and we were out having a drink. And she said, um, "How would you feel if you know Facebook was to start some sort of new product where there was live streaming?" And I said, "Look, you were a journalist. I've spent a lot of time in newsrooms. We all know if that happens." It's going to be, you know, live streaming terrorist events, suicides, you know, all the awful stuff. And she said, I know, but inside Facebook, they all just talk about it as a place that you can live stream people's birthday parties. And I was like, yes, but it's more like to be used for the bad stuff. You know, and newsrooms learn. Oh, I can't remember the name. What was it was a terrible incident in Chechnya where there were children in a gym and it was an explosion. It was like, I, I can't remember what it was. A long time now. ago. Yes. A long time ago. Anyway. After that, newsrooms put delays on live streams because they got caught out and they live streamed something horrific. And that that to me is with Facebook is that nobody needs to live stream in the absolute millisecond. And you're right, they can't, they've got much better at catching this stuff than they were during the Christchurch shooting, but they they cannot guarantee that they have got enough content moderators across the globe to, to be ready for that. So to me, they should have a delay. And we, that's just one of the things that we say, because the harm, going back to harms, if they'd done a risk assessment of Facebook Live, somebody would have said, well, hang on. Yes, it's going to be birthday parties, but there's also going to be really horrific incidents. How are you prepared for that? And if you're not prepared for it, you shouldn't be allowed to launch the product. But there's still at the same time, you know, really horrific things to get shared in that way, because it's the only the only mechanism that people have. And and so, I mean, I think that the nature of the Ukraine war is, has been very different than than maybe maybe it was expected to be just because there is nowhere for Putin to hide in terms of what's actually going on on the ground. Right. I mean, what's being hit, what's being and that's a lot of that is not all of it, but a lot of that is user generated content. And and sometimes the only thing you have to hand is, you know, the Facebook Live or the TikToks or the whatevers. So, I mean, yeah, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be there, but a live yeah. stream of a mortar shell landing on an, like a school, it should be captured. Absolutely. Should it be in the moment uploaded in real time? You know, I think we need to capture this stuff. We need it for war crimes tribunals. We need it for awareness. We need all of those things. But I just I worry a little bit in the same way as newsrooms had to learn that we you know, if 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 there's no filter or there's no time delay or whatever, then, you know. And some people yeah. will say, oh, Claire, stop being a nanny state. You know, I'm always very aware that I'm British and we're always a bit more careful about these things. But I just think that the harms that are being caused um, by these platforms require different types of technology. I'm certainly not disagreeing with you. I'm just I'm just sort of noodling on the whole notion that um, I mean, I know that personally I, I avoid watching that kind of content because I, I don't you know, I, I know what it will do to my emotional state. So I don't need to see it live or. I'm I'm glad to have the, the warnings of it's so I can avoid it as appropriate. Yeah. However, comma, I think the the what it has done in terms of 
swaying the world is it's made it a lot more possible to tolerate what's happening for instance in the cost of diesel and the cost of fuel um people are willing to take that on in the interest of trying to address the situation in the ukraine so it's changed public opinion or at least it's modified public opinion in terms of you know this this thing is serious and it's not just a little kerfuffle thing going on again doesn't have to be live and in a split second but but i think that there's something there about how it's changed the face of popular understanding um not necessarily in pleasant ways but but i guess it's it's just a really circuitous way to come back and say there's a there are two sides to so many of these coins well but i but i think rather let's not think about it as live streaming let's just talk about user generated content versus not you know the gulf war vietnam you had embedded journalists who were only really allowed to see what the government would allow you to see when you see conflicts told by the people themselves who their buildings are being bombed. I mean, and that's what I go back to when people go, oh, if only we were back in the day of Walter Cronkite. Well, right. on one hand, maybe, but no, because all of the stories that we never heard, you know, the, I very yep. much doubt the Vietnam War would have lasted as long as it did if we had had user-generated content. Um, you know, so I, I, that, and that's ultimately the internet. That's the power of the internet, meaning that we have networked publics who can create their own content, tell their own stories share their experiences that has been that's you know and yes it has challenged the mainstream news media but I would say for very good reasons and we're now having to just adapt to the fact that with the good that comes with that there are also issues like should we immediately live stream the live stream yeah. should how do we deal with foreign actors trying to influence an election um so yeah you really can't talk about user-generated content as your research shows without really talking about misinformation or disinformation. You mentioned that uh, you know we 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 could do some research to kind of understand the provenance um, rather than thinking about the content moderation, which I think is a really interesting thread to pull on. So, if we were, what are the methods that we could do data provenance? As an, for example, if you're looking at a piece of art that's up for auction. Uh, the way to evaluate its validity or its worth is to go back and look at the provenance of that piece of work. Um, I assume you're thinking about the same kind of concept here. How do we do that in real life? So if you are somebody who is seeing something um, and it's an image, for example, one of the best things you can do is a reverse image search on Google. So you might see a, a video of a storm uh, you can take a screenshot from that video, upload it to Google and say, well, actually, it's a storm from, you know, 2018. So you realize the problem like this is not from now. Um, so you're always trying to get back to the earliest version of something. But yes, it's exactly like the provenance is looking at the account. Who are they? Would you expect them to be there? What have they posted previously? It's kind of like a Sherlock Holmes type detective um, investigation of trying to understand all of the metadata and the clues that you can get from the content, the account, its history, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but an example I use quite a lot is from, um, again, it was a British example. We had a terror attack on Westminster Bridge and somebody was killed with a van. And there was an image of a, a woman. She was a Muslim woman wearing a headscarf and she's passing by the victim. And it was the image was tweeted. It went viral. And in the, it basically says, you know, you know, not caring for this victim, you know, hashtag, and then all terrible Islamophobic hashtags. Now, from a platform perspective, they couldn't really do anything about that because that was a genuine image. But when she was spoke to afterwards, she said, well, yeah, of course, I didn't look at the victim out of respect. I was on the phone to my husband because I was terrified 
But that context, of course, was missing. Now, the platforms were stuck because it was Islamophobic, but it was, you know, freedom of expression, et cetera, et cetera. But after a couple of weeks, they realized that actually it was tweeted from a bot account, a Russian bot account. The accountant's name was Texas Lone Star. So it looked like it was an American, but it was actually Russian. And then the platforms could take action because they had evidence that it was not a real person. It was a bot and they could take action. It's very hard for those of us at home to do that kind of analysis because we don't have the back end access to data that the platforms have. So that's the challenge. So we have to kind of trust that the platforms are doing that kind of work. But as I said, it's very difficult for them to make those kind of decisions around content, but it becomes much easier when they look at the, the account or the provenance. I do remember that uh, exactly, that that image and the controversy around that image. But the difficulty is that by the time that the platforms actually identify this, the damage is done. In other oh, words, yeah. human psyche is such that we we get emotionally entrenched into the image or the context of the image. And then it's just so easy for us to push that button. And, you know, if the thousands of followers, boom, now that has been just virally uh, sent out to, um, you know, really the rest of the world. So I'm struggling with the idea of digital literacy in that I believe that that's really important. However, by the time we get to the point where people understand data provenance, when people understand, you know, bots and amplification, are we ever going to get there and still catch up in terms of data literacy for the vast majority of populations so they don't immediately press, you know, share? I mean, it's a great point. An example from a couple of weeks ago you might have seen was um, there was a Newsweek article uh, that was actually I mean, it wasn't a great article, but it was suggested there was kind of it was confusing. It sounded like Iran was going to execute 15,000 protesters and somebody created a meme and it got retweeted by Justin Trudeau, because those of us who understand that, you know, Iran has been treating its protesters in a really, really deeply problematic way. The way the headline was phrased, our minds went to a regime that we know is treating people badly, 15,000, the word execution and all of a sudden, everybody said two and two is five. But that went everywhere. And celebrities were retweeting it and activists. But that's kind of like, oh, you know, I can see why it happened. But it, many people who should have known much, much, you know, they knew this stuff still did it. So to your point, I think we could put everybody in media literacy boot camps and it doesn't change what happens in the moment. And I've said this many times. The very like day three of the pandemic, I re-forwarded a WhatsApp message saying that New York City was going to shut down, which is where I was living. The city's going to shut down. You need to go and get provisions. It's going to be a lockdown. And I shared it with 10 people because I was terrified because, you know, and so it doesn't matter even if you're the lady who studies misinformation, you can still um, in a moment of high emotion. So I would like us to, to do a better job of saying, like, you can scroll, but do you have to press the retweet button? I mean, are you an epidemiologist? Are you the person that should retweet the thing about the bivalent booster? Maybe not. Are you on the ground in Ukraine? Maybe not. Are you the best person to board it? Because we have, we essentially gave everybody one of these machines that I'm waving around now. Um, but we didn't say, hey, here are the ethics of having a publication machine in your pocket. This is the harm that can be done if you're not careful. And instead, we were like, go for it. Go crazy. Because the platforms, it was in their interest for us to share everything. Because the more we share, the more eyeballs, et cetera, et cetera. But we got used as opposed to saying, 
hey, I'm getting, you know, you're 17. Here's a fancy new car. You can't get in the car until you've done your driving test and you, you know, you've learned the theory, et cetera, et cetera. We just didn't, I don't think, explain to people what it means to be a publisher. And if you're a journalist, you know the ethics and the law, uh, you know what it means, that the harms that can be caused to your sources if you're not careful. But we didn't have those conversations around the power of the smartphone and social network. So rather than like check everything before you share, it's like, just don't share as much. <laughs> don't be that person at the party. I think you can really be forgiven for the first days of the pandemic and sharing that because my recollection of the first six months of the pandemic were that things that you never thought were possible were happening all the time. So, yeah. I mean, I think it was pretty hard to be critical and, and assess what was likely or not le- likely in that context. But, it, you know, I, I sort of wonder if it's digital literacy that we need. I mean, of course, we need digital literacy, but if we also need a certain boost of emotional intelligence as well right do we have to react to everything you know can you look at and say that's that's interesting and move on yeah no I'm completely with you we talk a lot about emotional skepticism and in fact we recently designed um, an sms course so it's a five-day course and when you sign up you say yes I'd like my nugget of content at 9 a.m or whatever time and then for five days you get basically a message that teaches you about some of these things And we piloted it in Kenya and we had two or we had a number of different courses, but we were interested in one that just taught you the tactics and techniques. So we'd say, hey, be on the lookout when you see a logo, because logos are used as a way to garner trust. Be careful if you see somebody wearing a white coat or be careful if you see a text that says my sister's a nurse, because that's a known tactic. So we had a course that was focused on tactics. And then we had another course that was focused on teaching people how their emotions were being manipulated. And that the result showed was a more effective course. Right. So I'm now really think we need to double down on not focusing much on the content, but to say this is how your emotions are being manipulated. Because I think when people hear the language of manipulation, it changes everything. Nobody wants to feel that they're being hoaxed, which is when you teach your granny not to get hoaxed by like a letter that comes through the mailbox. Like nobody wants to believe that they're being scammed. And when you use that kind of language, you find people are much, much better at spotting misinformation in the wild when you get them to think about the way that their emotions are being manipulated. So that's what I think we should be doing more over the next few years. So- I understand that you said that we tend to fixate on what is true or what is false, but rather the biggest concern is instead the weaponization of context. I love that phrase. Can you tell us more about the weaponization of context? Yeah. So back in 2016, I was so frustrated at the proliferation of the term fake news, because as somebody who'd studied this for a long time, I knew that a lot of the problematic examples were not fake from like a standing start, they were just old content used out of context or the wrong caption or, and so I I really wanted people to understand that that that's really the most effective space. And as I said, it's this gray speech in the middle, which is there's a kernel of truth. Um, It's, you know, it's imagery that is genuine, but it's just used in the wrong context. So, and that weaponization word is because I wanted people to understand that, you know, if I'm a bad actor or a disinformation agent, whatever we want to call those people, they understand that, that they understand our brains. It goes exactly back to the conversation we had about the crown. Weaponization of context is, oh, okay, I know, you know, you're going to give me the bit that I recognize, the dress that I remember from the six o'clock news, and then I'm going to change the language or create a false situation but knowing that I'm you've already got me because there's a kernel of truth so that that's really what I wanted people to understand and the example I just gave of Westminster Bridge is a genuine image a genuine situation but the context the description of her not caring was not true 
We talked about how our emotions are really manipulated, particularly with the weaponization of context. But are there things aside, you know, we said the content moderation this is, doesn't necessarily work. Digital literacy is a, is a long game. But are there short-term things that we could do or ask the platform providers to do? For example, um, being able to share something you know, to 10,000 followers with just a click of a button. Uh, are, could we ask that some product modifications be made so that it is a little bit harder to share? I think uh, WhatsApp changed some of its uh, features so that you can't just share a picture to everybody on your WhatsApp list. You have to click the names that you want to share. So there's a little, it doesn't disallow you to do it, but it creates a little barrier that perhaps provides uh, a disincentive to be able to share it so wide um, within, you know, within a second. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, you've 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 described the number one thing that works. It doesn't solve everything, but the more friction you add into the design of a platform, the better the results. So nudges, so a reminder of like, oh, you said you want to share this, but you haven't actually read the article. Uh, or just adding the flag that says, you know, you can click through it, but fact checkers have said that they're not sure this is true. You know, anything like that, any nudge or any friction, or as you say, having to select people, making it harder to copy and paste, all of those things actually have like very obviously benefits to slowing down sharing, which is what we're trying to do, not to make it impossible, but to slow down um, sharing and reach. So I think, again, the platforms were designed to make it as easy as possible, as slippery as possible, absolutely no friction whatsoever. The more that that gets designed in, which of course the platforms have no incentives to do because it's against their business model. But if regulators, you know, because the idea of regulating content is deeply problematic, but this kind of stuff or requiring more transparency, requiring that algorithms get audited, those kind of uh, examples of regulation, for me, are the, the direction that we need to go, because it's not in their interest when they have to make more profit every quarter, not just make a profit every quarter, they have to make more profit for their shareholders. They're doing everything they possibly can to keep us addicted. And so, you know, I teach and just on Tuesday, I was teaching my class. And we were talking about how many hours they had spent on different apps the day before. And the app that they spend most time on is TikTok. And as you probably know, it's incredibly addictive because it has a very, very personalized algorithm. One of the students had spent 14 and a half hours the day before on TikTok. Because you can see, wow. you know, you have to look at screen time on the phone. Now, you know, we sort of had a laugh as a class about it, but she is a victim of a designed technology that everything is designed to keep her on her phone for 14 and a half hours. Very personalized algorithm, very easy scroll mechanism, dopamine hits coming out of the wazoo. I mean, so until we do something about that, then, you know, and the, the only way that's going to happen is through regulation because the platforms want us to spend 14 and a half hours. Thank you very much. They're raking in the money. So that that's what we need to be better at. So we've covered a lot of ground from the technology to literacy to emotional to, you know, business models and friction or lack thereof. But I think it's probably time to to, to wrap for today. And I wonder if you could just list a few things that you think that our listeners should take away and things that they can look out for or do in their own, you know, navigation of the user generated content world. So I don't want to, you know, end on a bad note, because I actually want to come back to the fact that, you know, these technologies have enabled so much magic to happen. 
but I do think, unfortunately, it's on us. Yes, the platforms have to do more, but I don't see huge changes happening anytime soon. And so fundamentally, as users, we have to step up. And I think it's about being more savvy about our own use. But we've also got to have conversations with each other. Because I think for a long time, people are like, oh, it's just Instagram memes, Claire. What's your problem? Like, what, you know, it's a YouTube video. What's your problem? And what I see is this, like, constant drip, 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 drip of this kind of low-level hate speech, conspiracy content, anti-Semitism, you know, this drip, drip, none of which is going to break any policy guidelines. But over time, I worry about it. So when we have 14-year-old nephews or 65-year-old uncles, I just think we have to have more conversations with each other to say, hey, you know, like, I know this seems harmless, but I'm, I'm kind of worried about this. And it's a silly analogy, but it sometimes feel like, you know, throwing a Coke can out of the car isn't the end of the world. But if we're all throwing Coke cans out of the car all the time, we're living in a really scummy space. And that's how I feel about our information spaces, which is if we're not responsible for what we're sharing and holding each other accountable to what they're sharing, then we're going to live in a kind of scummy space. But if we go, hey, I quite like this to be a park that's clean and pleasant that I want to walk my dog in, then, you know, we have to have social norms, which means that we all kind of hold each other accountable. I think that's a great analogy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this Tech Sequences podcast. We are Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. Tech Sequences, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.